thankful everybody's out this morning to celebrate Resurrection Sunday with us. This week we've had opportunity as a church body to meditate on the Passion Week and all that our Lord suffered for us. We covered last Sunday the first four stages of the crucifixion. And then Friday, we covered the last three stages of the crucifixion. Revealed in John's Gospel account, we've seen the death of our Savior. The brutal crucifixion, both physically and spiritually, because the wrath of God was being poured out on the Son of God for His bride. The profound inscription that Jesus is the King of the Jews written for all to see, the prophesied game of chance, the gambling for Jesus' clothes as he faced the judgment for sin, the compassionate intercession, Jesus cared for his own mother from the cross, and the disciple then responded in compassion towards Mary, taking her and caring for her the rest of his life. The divine accomplishment Jesus did What no human could ever do. Fulfilled the law perfectly. Obeyed the Father perfectly. He loved His own to the very end and said, It is finished. And then the final confirmation of death. Jesus was dead and it was confirmed and verified by the witnesses and the spear that sank into His body. And then there was the courteous burial. Jesus' body was cared for by the least likely of people, two religious Jews who had become believers in Jesus. This must have been the worst time of the original disciples' lives. Their entire world was turned upside down. Their master had been brutally murdered. The one they had seen walk on water, calm seas, raise people from the dead, deliver people from demon possession and heal the sick, was now dead. How could this all-powerful man die? How could someone who had shown such power and grace be the victim of evil? They must have thought, why? Fear must have overwhelmed them. Peter must have been replaying in his mind over and over those events of Jesus being beaten and his own denial of the Lord three times. And then on that last time when he had denied his Lord, the Bible literally says that the Lord was turned to face Peter and he denied him at the same exact time. It must have been playing over and over and over in Peter's mind. John had watched the death of Jesus himself at the cross. John had watched as Jesus breathed his last. John had seen Jesus cry out to telestai. Accomplished. Finished. And even though the Lord had told him he was going to die and rise again, he had not understood and embraced this truth yet. The disciples were demoralized, depressed, hopeless, broken, confused. How was the hope of the world dead? How could someone 
who had made so many lives joyful be dead. Desperation and terror must have overwhelmed their hearts. This is why we find them hidden in the room with the doors locked that first Sunday night. But on Sunday morning, as the sun began to come up, hope began to shine upon those true followers of Jesus. The picture of the sunrise is a perfect picture for what happened that first Lord's Day. As I've been meditating on the cross this week, I've been reminded that the victory of the cross guaranteed the resurrection on Sunday morning. There was no way in the world Jesus would stay in the ground. It was impossible for Him to stay there. As we saw last week on Friday night, when Jesus spoke the word to Telestai, Sunday was guaranteed to come. As a pastor, I have a little motto I rehearse in my head every week all the time. I think this motto every week for much of the week But this week, my motto took on a whole new significance for me. My motto is this, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Often it is, I'm getting ready, I've got to get ready, I've got to get ready, I've got to get ready. Sunday's coming. Another sermon. This week, I confess, the week had a deeper amount of joy to it. An expectation that in some weeks I haven't always had. This week, I thought on Jesus' death and the horror he experienced for me and his bride, the church. And because I preached another sermon Friday on the cross, I confess, I could not wait for Sunday to come. So Sunday's coming meant so much more this week. The pain, the agony, the terror, the horror, the wrath, the sadness, the brokenness. The pity of the Passion Week broke me again. And yet I still found present in me sin. And so the weight of my own sin being the very thing that kept the Savior on the cross was once again overwhelming to me. How about you? But as I was reminded by the Spirit in His silent voice, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Praise God, Sunday is coming. At the same time, something struck me yesterday as I finished up for today. I had something very different than those disciples who experienced the death of Jesus the first time. Folks, we have something different from them. The disciples who experienced the death, they were in it and they did not know Sunday was coming. That's an interesting thought. I knew Sunday was coming. I knew because the first resurrection Sunday had already come. Jesus was alive. My sin was paid for. Jesus is alive. I was looking to Sunday with expectations of celebrating what had already happened. Jesus is already alive. And he's been alive. So now every Sunday is another opportunity to say, Sunday has come, praise the Lamb. Folks, we need to live knowing that Sunday has come. Resurrection has come. 
Christians, we need to live realizing and embracing and enjoying the fact that Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Death is defeated. The grave is not, has no power over us anymore. Jesus is alive. We are alive because He's alive. We live forever because He conquered death and hell. All Christians go, yes, great. Now this message of hope for every born again, is for every born-again believer in Christ. We are alive because He is alive. Look at the effect. Romans 6 says it. Paul says it. In Romans 6, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him, for the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, ladies and gentlemen, beloved, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. You are alive if you are a believer because Christ is alive. We don't have to be mastered by sin anymore. We are alive. Praise the Lamb. You don't have to walk in sin. You can enjoy the Savior, God forever. Isn't that glorious truth? So today... I want to walk through that first Resurrection Sunday and watch as the sun came up and see the glory of the Savior. Let's start with a little harmonization. When you read your Bibles, often you look at them and you say, how do they all fit together? I'm going to read it just, I'm going to kind of give you an idea of how it fits together. It appears that Mary Magdalene set out with a group of other ladies for the tomb early in the morning before the sun had completely come up, as Matthew 28 and Mark 16 say. On the way, or around the same time, this, there was a great earthquake that happens, and the angel rolled away the stone as recorded in Matthew 28, 2-4. We are not exactly clear why, but it appears Mary Magdalene sped up her approach to the tomb, leaving the ladies behind. This is true because in John 20, verse 1, it appears that she comes to the tomb by herself, and it was still dark. And then the account of Mark says, when the ladies as a group arrived the tomb, at the tomb, the sun was up in Mark 16. So she gets there ahead of time. Maybe the, maybe the earthquake caused her to speed up. We don't know. Then when Mary Magdalene realized the body was missing, the other ladies arrive. Next, the Gospel of John states Mary left again in a hurry to inform the disciples that the body was missing in John 22. Then the other ladies stayed at the tomb, were visited by angels asking, What do you seek the living among the dead? As Mark 16, 2-8 talks about. And after this, Mary Magdalene was already had gone to talk to the disciples and she arrived at the disciples, prompting John and Peter to leave in a hurry to go to the tomb. Then Mary, slowly it appears, made her way back to the tomb, missing the angel's visit to the other ladies. Mary apparently 
arrived back at the empty tomb after John and Peter had already realized Jesus had arose from the dead. And this was when Mary was visited by Jesus at the tomb, as John 20, verse 11 through 18 talks about. The reason why I do that for you is to show you that you can reconcile the Gospels together. A lot of liberals would say, oh, see, they contradict. They don't. They fit. It just takes some work. Now, I want to dig in a little deeper and look at a couple of observations from that first Resurrection Sunday, especially focused on John's Gospel. Let's look at four surprises. We'll probably only get three, but that's okay. On the first Resurrection Sunday, so that we will worship and serve our Lord with joy. Let's look at the first surprise. First, surprise over when the resurrection happened. Look in verse 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. A little translation of that little phrase at the beginning is, Now on the one of the Sabbaths. It's literally, now on the one of the Sabbaths. This means on the first day between the Sabbaths. This was the day the Lord rose from the dead. The day after the Sabbath. The first day of the week. Why do we have church on Sunday? Why do we always come out here? When the commandment to the Jews was to keep the Sabbath. There are three groups of errors on the Sabbath question. The first one is, there's a group of people who say that the Sabbath is Sunday. Folks, this just isn't true. Second, there's another group that says, Saturday is the real Sabbath, and so the church should be celebrating the Jew, with the Jews on Saturday. It's the Seventh-day Adventist is one of that group that comes on Saturday. Then there's another group that says Sunday has replaced Saturday, the Sabbath, so we should keep the new Sabbath on Sunday. The first group misses it because they try to enforce this tradition on the text, and that's wrong. The second group misses it because they try to enforce the application of God's law given to Israel, to the church. They miss it. The third group misses it because they are not really seeing the true reason for worshiping on Sunday. Listen to me, folks. We worship on Sunday because he has finished the law on the day that he died. And we now are alive because he rose on Sunday. Coming to church is not a have-to for the believer. It's not a have-to. It's a, I get to. I get to go. Praise the Lord. All of us that understand what Jesus did and what he finished on the cross get to worship him on Sunday. Isn't that glorious news? I admit some of you are traveling from out of town and I don't know some of you in here. So I just want to encourage you. Um, we don't celebrate Sunday once a year at Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate Resurrection Sunday, every Sunday, praise the Lamb, He's alive. Go to a local church. That was for free. He rested on the Sabbath, but He burst forth 
in victory on Sunday. As the hymn writer said, as we, we sang just a little bit, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Glorious words, aren't they? It was a surprise that he rose from the dead on Sunday. I mean, after all, everything had been centered around Saturday. Why Sunday? Well, it's as if God says in a way, look, that's exactly right. Everything you were doing was wrong. You were doing it with wrong motives. So look, I have had victory over the law. I'm alive. And by the way, we proclaim Sunday every day, not just Sunday. We rest in Him every single day of the week. Praise the Lord, right? So the first surprise was when the resurrection occurred. The second surprise, the surprise over who was the first to see the resurrected Jesus. This is truly startling. In 20 verse 1 it says, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, I can't do a full character sketch of Mary but because of time. But just a few words on this amazing lady and the surprise of her being the first one to see him. And the first one at the empty tomb. Folks, this is shocking. If you were reading this during the day of Jesus, to see that Mary was the first one to see the empty tomb and that Mary and the women were the first one to hear that he had been risen and that Mary was the first one to see him, this was shocking. The first to see was a woman? And the first to see the resurrected Jesus was a woman? If the world at that time picked a gender to reveal this truth to first, it surely would not have been a woman. It would have been a man. Yet this is so typical of Jesus and his ministry. God is not the one who shows partiality. In fact, he often makes efforts to go the opposite of what the world would think and do. So as to prove his point. The Jewish man-made laws of the time said a witness of a woman wasn't even sufficient. We may even see an aspect of this in how the women were disrespected by the disciples when they laughed off the lady's testimony. Look at Luke 24. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But God surprises everybody. I'm starting with women. (laughs) Immediately, as Jesus rose from the dead, 
the reality of the new covenant was coming to light. God had provided salvation and revelation of Himself and His glory to even the excluded amongst the many religious hypocrites of the day. Jesus showed compassion on a woman as well as men. Look at what Paul said. We know this. Paul in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. By the way, this is not a call to swing like a pendulum to the other side and make Christianity all about women. We see this in way too many churches in our culture, don't we? where the services are made to cater to women to the exclusion of men. This is one reason why churches are filled with many more women than men. Look, Jesus came to save both women and men. He's alive to save and give life to men and women. He is not partial to one gender. Christianity is not woman's religion. Or it's not man's religion. It's humanity's only way of life. By the way, different roles, ladies and men, positions in church or at home, have absolutely nothing to do with whether God is partial or not. Just because a husband is supposed to lead does not make the wife any less of an heir of Christ. Man, we should not keep our wives under our thumb thinking that we are Lord over them. At the same time, women, we should, you guys should not buck against your husband's leadership. Roles do not determine whether you're an heir of Christ. Our secular culture can't reconcile those two truths, can they? They have a real hard time putting that two, those two together. They think roles determine whether or not somebody's partial, and that's not true. Folks, Jesus loves men and women both. And Mary is a beautiful example of this. Mary was broken. Matter of fact, Mary was so broken. Look over at 11 (coughs) through 18. Mary had seen the crucifixion from a distance. We know this from John's account. This must have been a horrible scar on her because she knew to a degree what Jesus had went through. She was weary because of grief she had experienced as she watched her Savior die. Listen to me. I see this as so encouraging to all of us who are weary and brokenhearted. Jesus sees us in our grief. Jesus has compassion on this woman who is suffering. What a glorious truth. Take that one to the bank. Keep that in your back pocket. Look at what it happens. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping and so... As she wept and stooped and looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Sunday has come. And that he had said these things to her. There are four elements of her grief that we see here and need to meditate on and think on as we see the surprise of Mary being the one that Jesus revealed himself to. She had that cross-eyed grief, like I said, that cross-focused grief. Again, Mary had been an eyewitness of the cross. She had seen him cry out to the Father in agony as the weight of sin and judgment due for her was placed on him. Can you imagine the agony she saw on Jesus' face as she looked up at him? You know, I, I confess, these passions movies do absolutely nothing for me. I'm sorry. They don't. They don't even come close to probably what he was experiencing. Not even close. We can't even comprehend it. But she saw it firsthand. Can you comprehend what she saw? I've seen people die. Many of you in the room maybe have seen somebody die. It's not a pleasant experience by any stretch, is it? It's very sad. It sticks in your mind. All y'all, you know what I'm talking about. It sticks in your mind, doesn't it? And you remember it. And it leaves a memory in your mind. But this death, oh, it is and was and will always be the most horrific death ever experienced by any person ever. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus experienced in three hours the infinite wrath of the Father for countless numbers of sin. If he only experienced the wrath of God for my sin, it would have been unimaginable. But he experienced all of his bride's eternal hell for three hours. And she watched him experience it. Do you think that would have stuck in her mind? Do you think she was grieving three days later? rocked her on top of that she was lonely at this period she was by herself mary appears to be all alone at this time while john and peter appeared to believe when they saw the empty tomb and the other ladies had seen angels and went back she was left alone in overwhelming grief not understanding where jesus body was the first couple times i read this passage 11 to 18 i i thought to myself I remember thinking to myself, why didn't she recognize him? I mean, what's going on? I mean, why not see him? She longed to see his face one more time. That's why she keeps saying, they've taken away my Lord. They've taken away my Lord. Jesus was the one that had delivered her from the seven demons. She loved him with a pure love of a Savior. Just one more time, she would have thought. Just one more time, I've got to see his face. And she was alone in her grief. 
No one was there to console her. By the way, my beloved, there are going to be times when you are alone in your grief. I want you to remember this passage. You are not alone. Just like Mary did not realize Jesus was there, remember, you are not alone. Jesus is with you too, believer. Notice also it's a continuous grief. It literally says weeping, was weeping. And it's the imperfect tense which implies it was an ongoing continuous wailing. Angels ask her why she's weeping, ongoing. Jesus asks, why are you weeping, ongoing? Both questions emphasize her continuous state of mourning. Again, this was like uncontrolled, continuous mourning, crying, wailing. She was literally weeping, inconsolable. And finally, we see her overwhelming grief was logic-constraining grief. Wasn't it? She then talks to two angels. Now, I don't know about you guys, but every other time in the Bible when somebody sees an angel, it's like shocking. <laughs> you know, often they fall on their face. Oh, you know, go get some meal. We got, we're going to talk to some angels. And they're in white. It says John twenty twelve, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. Though they are identified as wearing white, in the other accounts, the angels there appear to have a special illumination too. So, I mean, folks, she saw something, wow, okay? Now, what did she do? She continues to keep crying. She's inconsolable. And then Mary didn't recognize Jesus. In fact, Jesus is, she thinks he's the gardener. You see that in 14 and 15. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Folks, this is, this is shocking, isn't it? Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener? Now, it says she looked at him. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. By the way, this not recognizing Jesus is somewhat of a common occurrence in the resurrection appearances for various different reasons. But I think in this case, beloved, grief often keeps us from thinking logically. Do you not agree? When you are overwhelmed with grief, logic kind of leaves you. It causes us to miss the glory and the glorious truth that are right in front of us. But here is the glorious truth, Jesus revealing himself to her. Oh, folks, do you know how good this is? God is all about the brokenhearted. He sees us in our grief. He meets us there and reminds us that He is alive and we can trust Him. This is one of the main messages of that first Resurrection Sunday. There's hope for the broken. Are you weary? Are you wearied by your sin? Are you overcome by the weight of the things of the world? There's hope in the living, resurrected, reigning, ruling Savior. Oh, what a glorious God. 
What a glorious Savior. Grab a hold of Him. Embrace Him. Enjoy Him. Delight in Him. Oh, folks, and what's even more shocking is Mary was a sinner who became a worshiper. Luke 8, 2 says this about Mary and also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now, folks, this is not who the world would pick to show the first resurrection to. This would have been the outcast. Listen, beloved, people don't have demons living in them because they are good people. (laughs) Contrary to popular belief, demons don't dupe people. (laughs) Demons come in when people are in wicked, wretched sin, rebelling against God. And demons then come in and control them and point them the direction their heart is going. Mary Magdalene was a sinner. Get that? This woman partnered with the demonic realm to reject God's glory for much of her life. She was terrorized by evil. She knew wickedness to a level probably many of us have never even come close to experiencing. Demons have one goal. Blaspheme God's name. They hate God. They use their human instruments to blaspheme God continuously every second of the day. And she was filled with seven of them. And yet the Lord saved her from this demonic possession. And then he died to atone for her sin. And now Jesus reveals himself to her first before any other human. This is the gospel. Do you see that? That's the gospel. Jesus came for the wretched sinner. And he lives to give life to the wretched sinner. Glorious truth, isn't it? Wow, this is good. I love my job. This is so typical of Jesus. The least likely one he reveals himself to. The woman who was a sinner turned worshiper, who was grieving uncontrollably. Which brings us to how God's glory was beginning to shine brightly that first Sunday. Jesus rises and then hope rises for millions upon millions of people just like Mary Magdalene. Death is defeated. There is an all-satisfying Savior who lives and reigns and will return. I want to I plead with you if you're not a believer in Jesus today. I want to plead with you. Look, listen, Jesus is good. He's all-satisfying. He's the comforter to the brokenhearted. He's the for, Savior for that one that's in sin. Turn to Him, enjoy Him, delight in Him, trust in Him, embrace Him, as Mary did. And even in her grief, Mary was honoring the Lord. She had brought more spices to anoint His body. She obviously loved and respected Jesus highly. Contrary to the Da Vinci Code, by the way, 
and even some liberal, liberal scholars, Mary Magdalene was not necessarily a harlot. She also, obviously, was never married to Jesus. Get that. This is Italian garbage. The grace of God was evident as the Son of God arose from the dead on the first resurrection Sunday. Surprise after surprise after surprise. We come to the third surprise. The surprise over Jesus' closest disciples not expecting the resurrection. Back in verses 3 through 10 it says, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. I love this section of scripture. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. (coughs) And the face cloth which had been on his head and not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, that's John by the way, then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. We see here two of Jesus' closest disciples. John, who's writing this gospel account, doesn't even use his name. I think it is a a show of his humility, not wanting to bring attention to himself, even when he won the foot race. He did not expect the resurrection of Jesus. And this is a common theme, as I mentioned, in the gospel accounts. What is strange, though, and the thing that always, always both exhorts me and rebukes me is the fact that they had this information. And they had it numerous times. I mean, they should have been saying, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. They should have been the first one at the tomb. They should have said, okay, it's coming. I know when he's coming, I'm going to camp outside that tomb because he is coming back. He's going to live. You want proof? Look, eight, Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus had told them this previously. And then in Mark 9, 31 it says, for he, that is Jesus, was teaching them previously, his disciples, and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he had, has been killed, he will rise three days later. <laughs> now, folks, this is literally Jesus was continually, not just once. In the Greek, it's emphatic. The idea in the tense is that he was continually teaching and saying to them over and over and over and over, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. He's going to be buried and he's going to rise from the dead three days later. He didn't say it once. He said it over and over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, Jesus had said it so plainly to Peter, one of the guys running, that yet had not believed that Peter rebukes him for it. 
In Mark 8.32 it says, I have that. Yeah, dude. Oh, we'll get to that in a second. Let's read this one first. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Don't you think they should have been saying, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. Shouldn't they? And he was stating the matter plainly, as Mark 8, 32 says. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's almost comical, isn't it? I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise in three days. And he says it over, and over, and over, and over, and over again. And Peter takes him aside and says, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> ah! And then he does. And then they're not waiting at the tomb. They're locked up in the room. And Mary shows up and says, he's alive. And they go, the tomb's empty. And they should have said immediately to her, of course he is. We knew he was going to be there. We knew he was going to be resurrected. We knew he's going to live. Come on, grab a hold of this. Makes sense. He told us a thousand times. We don't know exactly how many times. That's, uh, what do you call that? Hyperbole. But you get it. After hearing this over and over, why do they appear to be surprised and confused as the events unfold? Why? Oh, folks, it screams something, doesn't it? The sinfulness of our hearts. The sinfulness of our hearts. Even after regeneration, the sinfulness of our hearts. They were clean. They were regenerate. That's what he said in John 13. Folks, the implications for this are crucial for everyone in the room. It's not now. It does not give us an excuse for not hearing what we're told from God's word and believing it. But beloved, if the apostles themselves heard it and heard it and heard it, that Jesus was going to die and rise from the dead on the third day, don't you think they should have been ready for Sunday morning? Shouldn't we? They should have been thinking Sunday's coming. I can't wait till Sunday. But instead, 20 verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. <sighs> and later, you know, it's again, they mocked the ladies. They mocked the ladies. When they returned with the news, oh, folks. This just shows how bad we are, how wicked we are apart from God. God has turned the lights on for us even after our regeneration. And folks, guess what? We don't always get it the first time or the second or the 99th time. 
Oh, parents. Here you go. Go and bring it home. This is the right hook. You ready? Parents, we must seek the Lord for our children, for they will only get it when he works in their hearts. How can we get so angry at our children for not doing what they say we tell them to do if we are just like them and we have regenerate hearts unlike many of our little children? How about this, spouses? We must seek the Lord for our partner. For no matter how many times we proclaim the truth to them and live the truth in front of them, only when the Lord works in their heart will they get it. So you better run to Him. Fellow believer, there is no room for believers ever being angry at other believers. Never. Because very few of us in the room can have that righteous anger thing mentioned of in Ephesians 4. Most of the time it's self-righteous anger. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to cry out for our fellow believers. Oh God, show them the truth. Remind them of the glory of your son. Parents, you will not change your children's heart. Spouses, you will not change your partner's heart. Believer, you will not change your brother and sister's heart. And by the way, this is why we must often continuously run to him. Because you hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. And don't always respond either. The more our church grows, the more we come to awareness of theological truths, the danger, more dangerous we become. All too often, the ones that have all the spiritual knowledge and all the great theological knowledge, we can know Greek and Hebrew, and be the most ungodly ungracious, unholy people on the planet. And the reason is because we have the same kind of hearing and understanding and memory that the disciples had. Take note, believers, beloved. Easter is, or Resurrection Sunday is a very interesting day. You know, I just said it right there. It fit perfect. Fit perfect. I just said Easter. Just said Easter. Half the crowd in here said, no big deal. The other half, I can't believe he used the name. <laughs> Stop! Check your own heart! You got plenty going on in your own heart. I'm convinced if I just focused on my own sin, it's a full-time job. I got enough here. The disciples were told and told and told and told and told. And yet they didn't believe. Understanding came as the lights came on in the first resurrection. 
the Spirit worked through the objective truth of Christ's resurrection to open eyes for God's glory and give hope. By the way, just a little side note, John is not bragging on him winning the foot race with Peter. He's stating facts that make it absolutely clear he is an eyewitness of the events. Thus, what he says is true. The details confirm the resurrection is a reality. And remember, John wrote this book, the Gospel of John, 50 to 60 years later after the events. And he can tell you that he got there before Peter, and he can tell you exactly where the angels were sitting, and he can tell you exactly where the face cloth was and how it was laid. 50 to 60 years later, what does that scream? I'll tell you. One person of the Trinity. You ready? Holy Spirit. How does he remember all that stuff? The Holy Spirit. God. So are these realities an effect in your life? Look at some of the details. John ran faster than Peter, verse 4. John did not initially go in, but only Peter after went in, and then Paul, John went in. They both saw the linen wrappings. The face cloth was lying in a separate place. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so sure that Jesus rose from the dead, I will stake my life on it. You could kill me right now. He is alive. <laughs> And you can't say that about any other false religious prophet. All the false religious prophets are dead. Muhammad, Buddha, all of them, gone. But Jesus is alive. The the surprises we've seen so far... As God started a work on a non-religious day. God revealed himself to a woman. People that people would have never expected it. And even God's own were surprised by the events. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a glorious resurrected Savior. Let's serve him. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for all that you have shown us from your word. Father, we pray that now, as we conclude this service, that our worship will be pleasing to you. Father, we, I pray that if there's someone in the room that has not truly come to know Christ, to repent of their sins forsake their old way and turn to Christ that right now your spirit will work in their heart to show them that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. That they may find hope in the resurrected Lord. Please, Lord, save. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior.